0: Welcome. I'm trauma therapist and neuroscience consultant Shauna Hill, and you're listening to the State Change podcast. So, although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thanked them for sharing and said You've I didn't have much to
1: me. go on at that point in my life. But I know that I knew that's my something that my mom is an otherworldly
0: type figure. She had one foot in this reality and one foot somewhere else. You've been and waiting for this I'm senior 20. year, all your like high school life,
1: and suddenly now you're like. Being in public service and
0: being a politician, I have less privacy than I would expect. When my mom started working from home, I saw her a lot more. She was in meetings all day, so it was like she wasn't
1: there. But but when we
0: bring everyone to the table, it's beautiful and it builds the social cohesion that is rapidly eroding in so many parts of the world. We talk with folks who faced some of life's most harrowing left turns and found their way through the fires of incredible trauma, pain, and adversity to a better state of things. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Today's episode of the State Change Podcast features one of the most powerful and hopeful conversations I've ever had in my clinical career with a combat veteran. I met Marlon Fisher earlier this year through our co-working community. When he shared a video of himself performing at a live storytelling event, sharing about his experience as a veteran of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. When I watched the video Marlon shared, I was struck by the resilience in his instinct to turn to the creative and performing arts as a way of processing his combat experience and connecting with others around his story. I reached out to him and we met over coffee, where I learned more about Marlon's pre-military experiences growing up in Harlem, New York, and working at a summer camp in upstate New York, where he developed a passion for performance, building community, and leadership. A father of two young sons who works in alumni relations for an independent school and is heavily involved in a local fatherhood support nonprofit, Marlon also performs locally in the comedy and storytelling scenes. Marlon starts his state change story in the 1990s at that summer camp, Camp Dudley, which he credits as a formative experience that built skills he would come to depend on years later to manage the pressures and traumatic losses of his deployment in Afghanistan.
1: So I went away to summer camp uh, right on Lake Champlain here, actually, in Westport, New York, to Camp Dudley. And what Dudley allowed me to do was get really good on stage and real and, and break out of that shyness and be on stage and, you know, be loud in front of people and, and cheer and and just sort of be a part of a community where everyone was just sort of, like, uh, sort of together. Um, so that's where it started. I think that's where, like, when I, my ability to storytell and share and become vulnerable starts. I tried to take advantage of the scholarship opportunity that I had through Merrill Lynch and New York in the national urban league. And I struggled, right? I struggled because, you know, I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I tried this college and that college. And I did this job, you know, I, I did retail and I couldn't figure out what I really wanted to do. And my younger brother had already joined, I joined the military at that point in time. And I thought it'd be a good idea that as an older, have my my brain fully developed that I would join the army, so I joined a little later in life. I remember being in the barracks, and they were seventeen-year-olds crying for, for to go home. And I always say to them, you know, I would always tell them to, to just toughen up. They sign up for it, um, but it wasn't easy. I was able to be a leader amongst a group of people from all over the country.
0: You know. I was just thinking, I was visualizing this as you were talking about it, that you're 25, 26 years old, you know, by middle age, parent age, like we are now, that is young person, right? But you were older than some of these other soldiers, right, around you, and it sounds like you had some awareness of yourself as the adultier adult in that setting, Right. Right. Where did that come from? Where did that sense of um, your awareness of their vulnerability come from?
1: Yeah. So up until this point in my life, I had spent a lot of most of my summers at Camp Dudley working with a lot of young young boys um, and men in a wilderness setting. And prior to joining the Army as well, I worked for a wilderness, therape- a therapeutic wilderness camp in Florida. Um, we were taking youth out of prisons and were and, in and, and, plucking them right into the Everglades. That was quite the experience. That's where I feel like my leadership potential and abilities came in order to deal with people of different personality types and understand their vulnerabilities and what was going on for them.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me that even though I see you in this story as a young person, you felt like a leader and a bit of a a role model and maybe even protector.
1: Yes, but I mean again like I at that point in my life I had realized that you know we that we take these we take youth out of environments that they're where their families are from and we do all the work with the youth but then, then send them right back to those environments. And so that all yes. that work just gets, you know, wiped off, wiped off and they're they become a blank slate again. So you know, that's where I realized like we have to do the work with the family, the community, the youth. It's just this, this this wrap in order to see some sort of success or what's successful for them. Um, and then that, that was a big part for me. And I didn't you know I didn't have a I didn't have much to go on at that point in my life. But I know that I knew that's something that I had wanted wanted to be a part of uh, later on.
0: So when you enlisted, was the campaign in Afghanistan already active? Did you know you would be deployed?
1: Yeah, so when I enlisted, that was during the surge um, in 2008, and the reason why I enlisted was because I had been this is seven years out of high school. I had been attempted to do different things, college, wide to get my degree, and I needed some stability. So I I joined for that reason, and uh, I knew that was going in during like a, the peak of a peak peak time of wartime. Uh, but I also took a took a role where I had a, uh, a, a job in an army where I wasn't on the front lines, but I, the work that I did with impacted what we did on the front lines. You know, most people, when they, when you, most, when you join, you take a test called the ASVAB that gives you a score that tells you what jobs you qualify for. Um, you know, then there's bonuses associated with those jobs at that time. At that time they had financial, financial bonuses. Financial bonuses, Yes. And so, you know, depending on what you do, right? Like, but I knew because I was older, that the skills I was going to get would help me outside of the military.
0: So there was a real... Economic strategy for you in sorting your military experience.
1: Right, right. I I thought I would get out. Most people who took the the the, the became analysts. They would get out in in the civilian world, work for, you know, the three letter agencies, right, and then work for law enforcement that sort of thing. Um And I thought that's what I would end up doing. But that's not what my my heart and what I've been doing my entire life up until this point was gonna would, would lead me to. I, I had to work with people. In a way where I was always helping them, and so yeah, that was you know that was my my fa- my choice my reason for becoming an analyst because I was thinking about my future, um, and how that would benefit me you know, economically and just sort of skills and when I applied for jobs.
0: So tell us a bit about Afghanistan.
1: I remember the first night in Afghanistan. Uh, the first night I got to Afghanistan, there was I was I remember I was in um in a PT uniform. Uh, and I think we was going to do laundry because we've been traveling for several days. And I was going to do laundry at one of the, the laundry huts. And we got uh, the, the sirens went off for a rocket attack. And when that happens, you're supposed to you know, get find the closest bunker, get down. Because at that time, the Taliban didn't have—they weren't that accurate. They were just shooting off rockets, mortars, and they landed where they landed. So you never knew, right? You never knew. And How
0: and long had you been in country?
1: This was my—like— uh, less than 24 hours at this point in time. Okay. Yeah. And that was in Kandahar. Our, Kandahar was big. You know, we had a lot of different, you know, our, of our partners there from other countries as well. But then during that time, I decided to, uh and I remember I'm gonna say, I started to start a video blog, like a vlog on my laptop, and I just started recording my experience there. You know, hey, this is Sergeant So-and-so. This is me. It's day one. It's hot. You know, that sort of thing. Just recording what it was like. <laughs> I just thought, you know, one is like I never saw myself joining the military. That's that's the part of, part part of it. And then two is I think that I, I would eventually have a story. It would this can become a story in some sort of way. I didn't think I, I you know it's, it's, this is something for me to look back on because am I ever going to do this again? Or if I stay in the military, this is going to be my first time deployed. What's what that's going to look like and feel like? And I would record every day for the first. The first few months, there'll be days where I wouldn't record. And it would just be a short, you know, anywhere between three and five minutes of me saying this was my day or I had a bad day. And I look back and I remember that I had good days when I recorded and there were some really low days. I was put into a tent that should have had a capacity for about 12 people. Uh, But I think we had a little over 20 people. And so we were sleeping on top of each other. Like I remember just laying in my cot cot and, you know, I would get off of my shift and come back and record and say, like, I had a good day today because I'm learning about this stuff or I had a bad day because I don't know what I'm doing. I have no confidence in myself. I remember that. That was very specific, like having low confidence in the work that I was doing because, you know, you train for this stuff, but when you're you're in it, it's on-the-job training full-time.
0: So you were aware in real-time – I'm not sure I know what I'm doing at this yes, big deal. because there are wardrobe. lives on the line. London, yeah, yeah, there are lives right. on
1: the line, right? And at that point, too, like, we had just gotten there and there were, again, this is like the surge. So lots of things were happening. And so in the first few weeks, we were losing soldiers left and right to roadside bombs and ambush attacks. And to sit there in real time hearing... Or hearing a report over the radio to sit there in real time and not being able to do anything about it was tough. Was really hard. And the and and what would follow is several hours later, you would head out to the flight line because their bodies would be even sent back to home, back home. And so we would honor them and the loss. We would honor them as their bodies were, were pretty essentially moved from the. Makeshift morgue to a helicopter that would bring them to back home to the United States, and then we go right right back to work right we go it's like all right, see you later, and we go right back to work, so there's no time uh-huh. to process anything at all zero chance um you were right back at it, and this was happening on a da- like a daily basis so you're
0: going out to this flight line, I assume sort of late in the day, usually like not in the morning, maybe at night
1: sometimes at
0: night, okay, and having this moment of presence and acknowledging the death of the day right and then i heard you say this in my own body started to respond because i can really feel this part of the story and then the expectation is that we do something in our brain and body here where we go back into disconnecting a bit from this so we connect in for a minute feel a thing pay attention to a thing and then disconnect a bit because we have to go back to work
1: yeah back to work Uh, and that back to work is, you know, information, right? Collecting information, gathering it, figuring out what to do with that that information to stop to stop what was happening.
0: I just wanna ask a question about that. I know that when you and I talked you're comfortable talking about this part, which is that your job was connected to what would happen out in about where people's lives were on the line, correct?
1: Yeah, in and, and some yes, in some way, yes. So I was so You had a
0: sense of connection and a little bit of responsibility and accountability. Yes. To those yep. outcomes.
1: Yes. And specifically I I was a yeah, so so everyone in the room is an all-source analyst. In my job specifically, I was one of two people. We were subject matter experts in personalities. So I created those networks. I knew the key players on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Right. We had to run. We had to run. What was going on to, for the civ- civilians and our and our my my soldiers as well, my fellow soldiers.
0: You know, Marlon, when I listen to this, I'm struck by picturing you as a young adult in this very high stakes work in a foreign land with people that you're in relationship with, but are sort of new to you, right? Where each day you're doing a kind of work that has human cost, and you know it. And I think about that younger version of you who wanted to work with youth, really connected to people. That's a skill of yours. But I'm seeing the humanity in you in that job and that you're being asked to go back and forth between being present for that for just a second and then going back into work mode. What sort of strategies were you using to manage this, all this sort of work and emotional toll? While you were there.
1: What I did in order for to, to, to process feelings is to take us away, right? To take us away out of that space where we were moving back and forth between a, a death and then back to work. And so what I was able to do is I created and facilitated a talent show. There's two briefings a day, right? One in the morning, one in, one in the evening. I asked my commander if we can use one of those briefings to do a talent show. Okay. I so love this. so that talent show became known as Live in the Hive. And <laughs> I would host it and we would do you know anything from singing, poetry, art stuff to uh I would that's when I kind of started doing stand-up comedy. I would just sort of make fun of the situation. Everyone laughed. We became closer and that during that one time a week it would take us away. I, mean, I remember saying the Outcast, "Hey ya." Yeah, and like everyone's just sort of participated in this you know and here so we has are It was a
0: real like fun we're yes. just being human being kind of feel yeah. like it just being away. people it took us away it took us
1: away and it allowed us to to sort of get closer together and 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 really focus on what what was important and that that helped mm. Coming to the end of deployment We get to We leave We pack up all our gear We get to um, Back to Kandahar And One of the Our last nights there uh, I'm laying in a tent With a few hundred soldiers It's a big tent And we're all in a All in cots And in the middle of the night The sirens go off Rocket attack And like I, As day one Right My first 24 hours You're supposed to Grab your gear Run to the nearest bunker but instead of doing that, because we were so tired—not physically, just emotionally tired—like at this point, like no one, no one gave a, a f. Right. I remember lifting my head and looking around the this tent to see who was going to move, who was moving to run to the bunker. Nobody moved, and I didn't even move. I put my head back down. and went to sleep, and you can hear explosions off in the distance.
0: So it's true that those rockets could have. Hit you. Oh, for sure. But nobody moved. Nobody moved. Yeah. As a trauma clinician, I just see the collective trauma response in that, right? That that's the end of the deployment feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's actually sort of science of how that kind of wear and tear and traumatic stress works, right? right. Which is that our systems get so accustomed and and self-protectively disconnected from risk. Yes. Because we aren't really built to sit in high risk day after day. That's our systems can't really do that.
1: And so the the following day after that, everyone gets up and we're like, "Did you hear that? Did you hear that again?" It just was like it's like nothing happened. But um, but we had to move out of this tent because there was a new unit coming in. And as I'm walking out, I bump into a kid who I've know who I knew from summer camp, Doug Green. Doug Green, when we were at camp together, gave me a present. Uh in a brown paper bag. And Doug meant this as a joke, but like it was a bag of shit. Like he shat into a brown paper bag and gave this to me as a present. (gasps) So he gave me a bag of shit and we shared this story with him and his soldiers and my soldiers and like, we went separate ways. That was my last time seeing Doug. A few months later, died in a, 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 during an ambush, I I, the attack. so that was hard. That was hard, right? Like, we had this, like, again, the, the rocket attack, this moment of where, of happiness, and then, you know, Doug— And
0: a connection yes. of yours from another time An- and from another place. another place.
1: Yeah. Right. In a foreign country, in a different country. It was amazing. And I think about Doug a lot. Doug, his mom has a charity, and I shared that story with her because I think it's really important. Like, I try to honor Doug in, the, in those moments. I got out of military— Several years later, moved to the United States and then went to uh, school, Burlington College, where I took this class with this guy named uh, Dr. Edward Tick, and he had this program called Soldier's Heart, and I learned a lot about the hero's journey through, you know, the hero's journeys, right? So the hero's journey is, you know, you're born, you're taught to go to war, you go slay the dragon, you come back, everyone's like, hey, like, welcome back, and that doesn't happen that often for, Amer- for soldiers, American soldiers especially, and so what... what Dr. Tick would do is take Vietnam vets vets back to Vietnam to close it off oh, and meet wow. with other we meet with actual Vietnam vet like v, Vietnamese soldiers and do this thing and it was like really cool and I was like I should probably do that too but it's really cool so it closes that up it closes that loop from like the the, the PTSD the, that it was suffered
0: so you learned from him way back here in Vermont post deployment post military life mm-hmm. about the idea that maybe reconnecting or somehow processing and returning or having some relationship to that hero's journey arc. Is that the right idea? Was, was a way to have healing.
1: Yes. And And that
0: made sense to you.
1: And it made a lot of sense to me because when I look back at my deployment and the personalities that were there, there were people who were indirectly um, impacted by recommendations that I made families, daughters, wives, you know, so and so forth, who are, who are somewhat indirectly impacted by my recommendations. By your work? By my work. And, I, and at that time, I would, th- and I would think, like, you know, I'm just doing my job. But now I look, when I look back at it today, I'm like, you know what? Like, there are, there are five Marlon Fishers in this country. Five. I could have gotten the wrong Marlon Fisher.
0: I see. Right. So coming back, having space from this, doing some of this processing, I'm hearing you say that there's a thing inside me that lingers, right? Like, did I did I do wrong things, right? right? Did something I do do something that harmed people? And I want to say that as someone who cares a lot about uh, veteran mental health and uh, works as a trauma clinician, that I think a lot about how in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in this newer generation of returned vets, we have really failed, really, really failed to bring the best tools and science that we really have around healing trauma to them. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Many of them are structural, like that, you know, the VA system is its own system and there's all kinds of reasons. But uh, when you, When you say that you learned this back here, not from the military, that you might need more process or that there were things Mm. that you were going to have to keep doing to attend to this experience you would had. I hear that you were really on your own and and that you fell into maybe some some ideas and some supports. But that is that a fair characterization that when you come back and you leave the military, it feels like you're on your own?
1: Yes and no. Right. I feel like it depends on your personality type. I have always stayed in contact with anybody who I've come in contact with in terms of like, building a community. So when I left, I'm st- like, even today, I'm still in contact with my, my roommate, my battle buddy, you know, uh, all my fr- all the people who I did Live in the Hive with. We-, we talk all the time, you know, as much as I can.
0: So you're, you're I call this a people keeper. Yes, a people I'm keeper. A people keeper. Yeah. yes, I'm a people keeper. Yes,
1: I'm a people keeper. Uh, some people, right, they'll just do their own thing. They just don't connect. They don't want to be in contact with that part of their life, right? Um, I was lucky enough because, again, I feel like I went into an age where I was able to understand how things impact me and know how to ask for help and know how to reach out and use my supports. The military does give you the tools when getting out. We get the tools. Some people get the tools. What I've learned in my work with youth is I'm going to give someone a tool, but I'm also going to show them how to use it.
0: Yes. What you just said is actually why this podcast even exists, mm-hmm. because it is actually a great way to learn how to apply strategies, tools, changes, et cetera. And the part that you said about, you know, it's not that we don't get some information or tools, but that it's sort of that implementation into my life, right? That's the tricky part, is also where I see your resilience in right. the story that you our people keeper, you're a storyteller, you build community. And in all of the parts of your story, I see you doing that, just mm. doing that over and over and over in ways that sound like it contribute to you really having this community and, and not being in isolation. Right. Then with this.
1: Really important. Uh, I, I just took my kids to see uh, Angela Davis and we didn't catch her whole talk. We didn't catch her whole talk. It was late in the evenings past my kids' bedtime but I did catch a very important piece, what Angela was saying, is that through all her trials and tribulations that she went through, having a community was helped her get through all of that. And it's so important to have a community. And I stand by that 100%. Um, it's, it's why I help my children build community right now and, and help teach them the impact of having good friends and close friends and trusted people around them. And it, to, me, to me, community is everything. It's It's everything. Um, yeah, it's you know, and being it helps it helps with the authenticity and being genuine and real really goes so far. Really goes far. And I'm glad that I I can, you know, call my friend in Texas who we were spent, you know, hours together sitting next to each other, creating live in the hive together. Uh and joking around with our family, talk about our families and like have this connection. We could go 6 months without talking and, and again feel like we were speaking yesterday. So yeah. I'm
0: so Uh, moved by you pointing that part out because I think right now is a particularly disconnected moment, especially for Americans in general. We are in a moment where we've never needed community more and it can be harder to find or sustain than ever. And some of that is the natural ways we've been disconnected, especially in recent years with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But when tough times come, the community that we want and need Right, whether it's a personal tough time or a national tough time or a global tough time, the community that we want and need has to have that trust in it. Mm -hmm. And it has to right, it has to be a place where you don't have to be on, has to be a place where there's like a deep knowing. And every veteran I know who is in contact with at least a few very trusted buddies of some kind will turn to those people in all kinds of time of difficulty right specifically to those people and i don't know if that's true for you but i saw your face light up talking about the live in the hive friend mm-hmm. and i thought yeah that's a shared experience that probably translates across all kinds of other difference right so, yep
1: it's all about that shared experience and then that connect how that shared experience allows you to have that re- a really special bond really special bond yeah mm-hmm.
0: How the storytelling, performing, and comedy have uh, have been a state changer for you?
1: Right. So comedy started for me uh, in Afghanistan. I remember again started with Live in the Hive, and I remember uh, like signing up to do a comedy show. I'm like, oh, this is easy, you know. And that, my first comedy show, I like, I killed it because I was, re- it was all the material was relatable. And then my second comedy show, no one got it, and I was like, oh, comedy is really hard. You have to actually do do some work. Um, when I moved back to the United States, there happened to be a great comedy scene here and in, in, in a supportive comedy scene and community here in Burlington. And I used that to sort of build my, my repertoire, my bit. That led to me hosting. And so when I heard about The Moth and other events, I went and told a story. I told a story about like a risk that had happened. And that just felt good because what I was sharing was myself. And, what I, and again, when you share yourself, your true self, connections become stronger. I walk around this town, you know, people like, oh, hey, Marlon, and I have no idea who they are, but they know who I am, and they feel connected to me because I shared a true yes. version of myself. If I share a fake version of myself, they probably wouldn't say anything to me when I'm walking around the market or anything like that. But I've learned I've, that those relationships matter. Those, like, even if I'm like presenting to 200 people in a room, it still matters because I'm impacting those people or anybody who's telling a story that's true and authentic and, and about themselves. Really, it re- those, some people can relate to those stories. Right.
0: I I think this is hugely important that you're not just saying storytelling has been great for me or I enjoy this. You're saying a kind of storytelling where I show up with my whole self and I show up kind of like honest and and Mm -hmm. really put myself in it. And, you know, as a clinician, as a trainer, as someone who speaks on mental health, one of the things I find myself saying a lot to people is that uh, is essentially reassuring them that. People will meet vulnerability with vulnerability almost every time. And they will meet authenticity with greater authenticity almost every time. Of course, we are not always in circumstances where we can trust that, especially people with power over us, like a boss or something, will always meet our vulnerability. But in in human engagement in general, as a principle, it's actually kind of science, right? right. That The more wholehearted and honest you show up, whether it's on that stage, storytelling, doing a comedy set, or even just in this conversation with me, that the people who receive you and are around you and get to be the beneficiaries of that moment shift into a space of authenticity also, even if it's fleeting.
1: Yes. And that's
0: been your experience?
1: Yes, for sure.
0: I think this helps people feel braver about hard things, which is why I find myself saying it so much. And I'm, I'm seeing in your story that not only has there been some healing for you, but I don't know if you're aware how much you're offering others. You're really offering others a, a a little beacon of light and connection. Folks who aren't up on a stage storytelling, or or maybe that's not their thing, but they don't have a place to be authentic, and they also don't know how to talk about the dark places or the painful times or the 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 traumas. Right. And they may not even tell you their story, but you telling yours. Means they can meet it, even conceptually in their own mind, with some vulnerability and authenticity, right? They can like talk to themselves about it, definitely, at
1: least. yes, for and sure. maybe
0: even to you or to one other person. Right? Do people tell you their stories?
1: Yes, I mean, some people. I mean, I, I think they don't really tell me their stories, and their in their approach to me it feels real. Right. It's not like, oh, you're the guy who was on stage like, hey, Merlin, like even in that small, like I saw you on stage. Like you could just tell from it. I just tell from their body language. And that's they don't have to tell me the story.
0: You know, the through line I hear throughout your story uh, with my lens is that. You have some personality traits, Marlin, that always were going to be sort of like working on your team, as I like to say, in therapy for folks. You know, that that human beingness, the humor, the ability to connect with folks and build community. But I also see you being a tenacious actor on your own behalf and someone who moved with a lot of curiosity about things, right? I see you as a person who's always moving through these experiences even if they're not going well, or even if you're, you're not sure this is the right thing to find the next adjustment or choice or thing that might work better, grow you, feel, you know, add something. The live in the hive, really practical example of you thinking of something that's not just like a cool idea, but really was meaningfully something you needed and your peers needed. Yeah. Right. One thing I know, and I want to give you just a moment to talk about before we end today, is that you are still in real time building new ideas. And uh, one of those is an organization called Dad Guild here in Burlington. I'd love it for you to say a little bit about what's going on with Dad Guild.
1: Yeah. So a, a good friend of mine, Keegan Alba, started his Facebook group several years ago. And the Facebook group was just, hey, dads, let's meet at this playground. Let's meet at this playground. Let's meet at this coffee shop. And so that turned into... Uh, Keegan having this great idea to create a nonprofit so we developed a board and my, we, we followed our strategic plan you know and here we are you know three years later or a little more three years later and we have you know we have money in the bank but a thousand people who receive our our mailings and uh, and attend our events and our events are anything from you know um some educational things go- happening to book groups uh library play groups uh we do a dad's night out more like you know a, bu- a you know, bunch of guys uh, Father identifying people coming out and sort of bu- and building a community, right? And which is which has been a lot of fun to watch.
0: And Marlon, thanks for sharing such a vulnerable story.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah, I you know again, like I said, sharing stories. You know, whoever listen, who, who, to your listeners, like this is why I do it, and I just know, I just know why it's important. <laughs>
0: Alan's state change story highlights a critically important fact about the human biological response to overwhelming circumstances like those he encountered in Afghanistan. That social connection, a sense of community, humor and creativity are powerful agents of personal and group resilience. The science behind this is resounding. Our brains and bodies feel safer, and we generally function best when we have a sense of social belonging and a place for fun and creative expression in our lives, especially in difficult times. But Marlin's resilience did not come from reading a book or studying it. It came from an innate sense deep within him to pay attention to the story of his experience and to document his time and the stories around him. His natural skills for leadership combined with his instincts to create, perform, and build community, just like he had done as a young person at summer camp, to offer Marlon and his fellow soldiers a gentler, more connected path through the daily critical stresses, losses, and challenges of their wartime circumstances. Marlon's story is one of my favorite kinds of examples of the innate instincts to survive, connect, and take care of yourself that we don't necessarily know we carry inside of us, and that are cultivated in places where there's safe, strong community. Places like summer camp. The State Change Podcast is a production of State Change Media and recorded at Dialed Studio in Burlington, Vermont, on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain. Our producer and sound engineer is Will Davis, our story editor is Laura Rose Shepard, and I'm executive producer and host Shauna Hill. Our show's theme music is by Phantoms, with additional episode music by Chelsea McGaugh, Falls, Solitude, and the Europa Protoharmonic harmonic Symphony Orchestra. Special thanks to our guests for their courageous vulnerability, and to John Toda, Wesley Davis, and the incredible team over at Syntax in Motion for helping us bring this podcast to life. The State Change Pod would not be possible without our amazing village. And special thanks go to Coley Haipman, Jens Hybertson, Hannah Rosen, Ebba Lukinder, Kai Gurley, and our friends at Middlebury Colleges Innovation Hub. If you or someone you know is struggling right now, you make sense, you matter, and you are not alone. Immediate support for mental health emergencies is available by dialing 988 from anywhere in the United States or contacting your local crisis support service or health care provider. To learn more about State Change Media and our mission to turn mental health into public health for all, or to bring more brain-based resilience to your workforce, organization, or community, check us out at statechangemedia.com or on our socials at state underscore change underscore media. We would love to hear from you.